0: Kia ora, what's up everyone? My name's Noah Wolof and I'm the host of the Beyond the Surface podcast, a platform to dive deep into the minds of incredible Kiwis who have a story worth sharing. For today's episode, I'm joined by Jahan Casanada, one of New Zealand's most popular TV journalists, author and mental health advocate. Stories have helped to shape mankind, from writing on the cave walls to TED Talks, the narrative that we tell ourselves every morning before we get out of bed influences our character. In this episode Jahan teaches us that by rewriting and becoming the author of your own story you can take control of your depression and your life. Just a reminder that in this episode we do talk quite openly about topics such as depression and suicide. If any of these topics make you feel uneasy I've chucked some helpful links in the description below. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. Welcome to episode number three. Awesome. Hey, Jahan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I remember you telling me about this idea like a year and a half ago when we caught
1: up for coffee. So it's awesome to see that you've brought it to fruition.
0: Thanks for following through. I think you're probably <laughs> the first person I asked to get on the show. So yeah. thanks for living up to your word. No worries. Um, hey, before we kick into stuff, do you mind just introducing yourself? You know, who is Jahan? What do you get up to for your mahi? So my name is Jahan Kasanada. I'm a journalist. So I've spent the last uh,
1: 12 plus years traveling around the country and interviewing people from different walks of life. I've mainly worked for TVNZ but I've also done quite a bit of writing Uh, and that's been an incredible career that's uh, given me an education in life in New Zealand that I couldn't have got in a classroom or anywhere else. Um, Now I'm working for myself so I'm still doing journalism but I'm also uh, doing a lot of speaking around leadership and mental health and storytelling and I wrote a book last year called This Is Not How It Ends which is around mental health.
0: Beautiful, man. Yeah. And um, you know, for everybody listening or for those watching, this is not how it ends. I actually had a chance to read it before you hopped on. Being a good interviewer that I am, yeah, and I'm good. sure we'll, you know, get into the book shortly. Sure. Um, but before we touch on that, you know, really keen to hear from you how you got into the work that you're in now being a journalist. You know, you started from such a young age. Yeah. Have you always had that I guess, natural curiosity around storytelling.
1: Yeah, I think curiosity is the key word there. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that because I think a lot of young people grow up in this country with a really fixed idea of how the world is. And it's so important that we teach kids to be curious and to ask questions and to be nosy and to challenge stuff. And so I grew up in a family where that was encouraged. So I was born and raised in Lower Hutt. My parents had come to New Zealand from Sri Lanka. They'd escaped a civil war over there and they came to New Zealand to start a family and a new life. And my dad was a journalist, so I grew up in a household where we were always talking about issues around the dinner table and we were having debates. So I think from a really young age I was I was taught to be curious and apparently I was 4 years old when I told my parents that I wanted to be a journalist. I don't know where that came from. I think I just sat in front of the TV for too long and and um you know, the TV was like this amazing box that sat in the corner of the living room and I was just so, um, I was so obsessed with the fact that these people got to have these amazing adventures and they got to travel the world and they got to have all these experiences and I was sitting on the carpet at home in Lower Hut, and I got to share those experiences with them. So I think, uh, yeah, from a really early age that's what I wanted to do and then, uh, Yeah, when I was 13 years old, I contacted the Homes program, which was like this big 7 p.m. current affairs show, and I managed to convince them to let me uh, get a camera crew and go out and do a story on Lord of the Rings, which was big at the time. And so, yeah, I sat there that night as a 13-year-old watching myself on TV, and I was just totally hooked, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Then I started writing for a youth magazine called Tearaway, which a lot of people might be familiar with. Um, and I, you know, did things when I was like 15 years old, I got to go to parliament and interview Helen Clark before the election. And so I was having all these crazy experiences. And then when I was, uh, 16, I got a little bit more confident and I started contacting the weekend Herald and the Sunday start times. And this was just before social media. And so no one really expected you to have an online presence. Like if you Googled someone's name, there wasn't really much there. And I said to them, I'm a freelance journalist. And I didn't tell them that I was just a 16-year-old sitting at home in my bed. I didn't have a journalism qualification. I had no experience. And they didn't ask me for my CV or my references or anything. So they just started commissioning these like 2,000-word feature articles from me. That's amazing. And they ended up in the paper. So that's how I got my foot in the door. And then I um, managed to do some more TV work throughout my later high school years I left high school. I tried to do a law degree that I just failed miserably at, uh, and I managed to to land a full time job at TVNZ, and that led to ten or twelve years doing the job that I've been doing. Amazing, yeah.
0: When you were, you know, in education as a hungry young journalist, yeah. you know, sort of cutting curves and being quite cheeky with, uh, you know, approaching some yeah. of the really big media outlets, were the teachers aware of that passion and did they support you along that way at all? Yeah, that's a great question. So.
1: At a young age, like I remember being 11 years old at Intermediate and going and making little documentaries using the school Handycam and like these Apple iMacs, those colourful computers that came in. And it was like, whoa, there's all this technology, I can can make my own um, documentaries. And I remember getting into trouble because I was never in class, I was always skiving off to go to the technology lab and work on that stuff. And so when I look back on that, like if I didn't have um, a really stubborn personality and if I didn't have that sense of confidence and determination at that time, I probably would have caved into that and thought, okay, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. What I'm supposed to be doing is sitting in class, doing the same units as everybody else, uh, doing my tests and my assessments. And so it's crazy to me that actually all of this incredible stuff that I've been able to do might not have happened if I hadn't taken the path that I took. And so that's one of the things I'm really passionate about now is, uh, you know, a lot of the work that I'm doing in the education space, conversations with principals and, you know, we have a great education system in this country, but I do think we're very good at stifling creativity and telling young people that they need to fit into a particular box, especially around assessment. You know, no one has ever asked me for my NCEA results. Uh, I told you that I you know stuffed up this law degree but i actually did a degree in public policy later on and that's been useful for me but no one's ever asked for a copy of that degree or a copy of my Mm. results so i think we're in a we're in a time now where uh, knowledge is really important learning is really important but actually it's not the knowledge itself it's the skills that come with that it's critical thinking it's the ability to ask the right questions it's the ability to use all this technology we have in a way that's helpful and doesn't end up overwhelming you but back then, you know, 15 years ago, um, I think I was probably quite an outlier at that time. Mm, yeah. Mm.
0: And look, and also if I can just speak on, you know, my personal experience, yeah. I'm somebody who's never been to university yeah. and being head boy at Altair College, I really did feel the pressure from the educational um, system and also through deans and teachers that the only logical next step for young people, um, you know, leaving year 13 is actually just to go to university. There wasn't much, um, you know, consideration even about trades there. And when I think about my friends nowadays who are tradies, they're the first person who are actually, you know, somehow buying their their first home because they're earning and they're learning at the same time. Totally. And, yeah, I can just totally relate to that. And I think it's all about, you know, the own relationships that you have with people and how and how you own that and the confidence that you need to you know ask those questions and put yourself out of out of your comfort zone.
1: Yeah, and last night I was actually sorting out some old boxes and I found some of the rejection letters that I got from editors and producers and I remember this is like how much foresight I had at the time. I was like one day, you know, these letters will prove what I've managed to achieve. So I actually printed off these these emails from my Hotmail account like years and years ago because I wanted to um, use them as fuel, and so I was looking at some of these last night, and there were there were emails from people being like, um, you know, you're not qualified to do this. You're you're a young reporter. We don't experiment with young reporters. You've got to go to broadcasting school. You've got to go and you know we've got people in the newsroom who've answered the phone and made coffees for three years, and they're still not cleared to go on TV. And the tone of that is like, you're you're way too confident. You don't realise all the stuff you don't know. You've got to go and you've got to learn all this stuff. And there's, there's obviously truth to that. Like I was, I was probably pretty cocky and I thought, you know, why can't I go and do this? But at the same time, the reason that I got into the industry was there was a, there was a small number of people who thought, okay, this guy actually does have some potential and he has some talent. Let's nurture that and let's foster that energy mm. and turn that into something that we can use rather than saying, mm, you actually haven't taken the right path. And I think the other thing for me, was um, the role that my parents had in my life. So I think I was taught from a really young age that I had value and I had worth and I was able to excel. So that was a story that my parents told me throughout my childhood. You you have a contribution to make to the world. You have these gifts and these talents and these skills. And so that just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because you grow up with this self-belief that makes you feel that you can actually do stuff and achieve stuff. And I think, you know, particularly in a a lot of Asian cultures, that can go too far the other way, where it's like, here's the profession that you need to go into, here's what you need to do with your life, and that can be really restricting. So I didn't experience that, but what my parents were really good at doing is saying, you know, you're really good at communicating, or you're really good at asking questions, or you're really good at uh, relating to people, or you're really good at identifying what people are talking about. And so. I was able to take those things and then go, well, what do I want to do with that? And that ended up being journalism, but it equally could have been policy, it could have been law, it could have been any number of other things. Mm. But I think there are so many people who grow up without having that reinforcement and without having that encouragement. So they get to the end of school and they go, oh, okay, what am I supposed to do? I need to do some form of study. I was sort of okay at calculus or I was okay at physics, so I'm going to go and do X, Y, Z at university. And then they come out of university after a few years with a whole lot of debt yes, with a qualification, but without necessarily uh, any idea of what they want to do from a, pro- from a professional point of view. So I think the most important thing is that we actually help young people to understand what are your strengths mm. rather than what do you need to achieve. Like if you know what your strengths are and if you have a strong sense of your identity and what you can bring to the world, then that could manifest as so many different jobs or professions.
0: So true, so yeah. true. And you like at the end of the day – you don't want to be stuck doing a job which you simply hate. Totally. You know? um, and if you follow your passions, you can make anything sort of come true. And that sounds so cliche, and it's I think it's probably not the reality for a lot of people, yeah. you know, who have bills to pay and stuff. But I think earlier earlier on in the educational system, if we can, you know, harness young people's creativity, um, man, the, it will be for the better for sure. Speaking about you know storytelling, that is a really key theme in your book. Um, and you talk about, you know, being, be, being the author of your own story. Can you talk about, you know, your experience through mental health and how storytelling has helped to influence, I guess, getting through some of those dark times?
1: Yeah. So I uh, had done a lot of mental health reporting over the years. And, you know, you and I are really fortunate to have grown up in this amazing period in our country where we're having these conversations, whereas 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about mental health. So we're really indebted to people like Sir John Kerwin and Mike King who have done so much of the groundwork that has got us to this point. So uh, I was doing a lot of mental health stories, people who'd been through tough stuff, people who had lost family members to suicide. And I did that for years. And so I felt that I had a really good understanding of mental health. And then I moved to Auckland in 2016 to take on a new job working on the Sunday Current Affairs Program. And I got up there and I realised really quickly that I was struggling and i think the key factors there were i was in a new city alone i didn't know many people up there i was doing a tough job i was working in a challenging environment i was working on really grim stories a lot of the time about you know topics that were really heavy and despite that i thought that i knew what was in the textbook so i was like i know all the stuff that you're supposed to do i need to go to the doctor and i need to ask for help so i did that And I remember sitting there and hearing the doctor say, you know, it sounds like depression. And a lot of people will have had this experience. You know, when you hear those words, you think, okay, this is a real thing. It has a name. It has a Wikipedia page. Other people have it. I can now get on with with dealing with it. And so I tried all of the things that you're supposed to try. I did counseling for a couple of years. I saw a psychiatrist. I took antidepressants. I did exercise, I changed my diet, I cut back alcohol, I cut back on stress and work, I focused on social connections, I did all of this stuff and after a few years my mental health was continuing to deteriorate so it wasn't actually improving. Now all of those tools are really useful and, and helpful in and of themselves but I felt there was something deeper than that, there was something underneath it that I hadn't got to grips with. And eventually, what I landed on was storytelling. So there was like this tool that had been sitting under my nose the whole time, because that's what I was doing for a job, right? But I'd never thought about it in the context of mental health. And what I've learned through all of my journalism is that every single person has a story. You know, when you wake up in the morning and you swing your legs off the bed and you put them on the floor, there is already a story inside your head that you have been writing. For years and years and years and most people aren't even aware that there's a story there or what that is so i became really curious you know what is the story that i'm carrying around what is the story that i've created for my life and what impact is that story having on my mental health and so i took some time to do some work around this and what i realized was that the story was toxic you know i had this story for my life that was built around Some painful experiences that I'd had as a kid around being bullied and growing up in a migrant family and trying to straddle two different cultures and feeling different. And basically, I had carried that story into my adult life. So I was going around in the world as an adult man, making decisions and interacting with people and making choices on the basis of this story that I had written effectively in crayon as a five-year-old. Which was like this mind-blowing realization to me i was like how have i not realized this how have i not known this so that then gave me the ability to to work out well what is this story how is that story influencing me and how can i rewrite that story can i actually change this even though i can't change the hard stuff that's happened in my life can i create a more hopeful and helpful story with the same facts and so i embarked on that process for about six months i took some time out of work And that resulted in the book but most importantly it resulted in um some pretty significant changes in my overall well-being and i think the crucial thing here is changing your story or or anything that makes a difference to your mental health doesn't mean that you pop out the other side and life is perfect and i think that's one of the big problems is when we talk about our stories we think there should be a happy ending it should be all sunshine and rainbows and I'm certainly guilty of that in the, the stories that I've told over the years. You know, so often we're looking for this thing where it's like person falls in hole and then person gets out of hole. And we yes. all love that story, right? Like that's a classic. But I think what I've realized for me, it's much more like this, you know? And it can be like, it can be up and down within a given day or within an hour or within a week. But that variation is actually just what it means to be human. But I think what I've learned through this process is I am the author of my own story, that means that I'm responsible, like I can't, no one else can write that story for me. And so every single day, I ask myself some of these questions, you know, what kind of story are you telling yourself? What kind of character are you playing in that story? The story that you're constructing for your life today, is this helpful, like is this actually facilitating the stuff that you want, or is it holding you back? How could you tell a different story with the same set of facts? And so to give the listeners an example, you know, during COVID, we're hearing so much about the facts that we can't change. So we're hearing about, you know, the borders are still shut, MIQ is stuffed, Auckland's still in lockdown. Like, so this is is not about pretending those things aren't true. Like, those are facts. Those are things that we can't change. But how do we interpret that? You know, how do we make sense of that? How do we go, those are the facts, but actually we have the ability to tell a more hopeful story using those facts. So I think it's pretty empowering mm. and
0: exciting and personally you know you've been so vulnerable going through this book and mental health has i think probably impacted well we all know someone whether it's ourselves or a yep. family member or a friend who has suffered depression mm. or felt suicidal thoughts or actually gone through with the whole mm. thing how has you know kind of following this process how what, what were the sort of tangible benefits for you actually going through that and actually instead of i guess being a victim to your own story. And yep. that sounds quite harsh, but I say yeah. that with, with with real truth. But mm-hmm. actually taking a step back and not being so reactive and actually, you know, taking taking control. What were some of the benefits that you saw through that process?
1: Well, that's a great question, no. And I think one of the things that's happened over the last few years is because we've got all of these mental health resources and we've got all of these tools and tips and strategies, and there's well-being experts and companies are spending money on well-being strategies. It's almost like we've got this abundance of, of tools, but it can feel like throwing spaghetti at the wall. And we also live in a culture that tells us quick fix, right? You, like, if you've got a problem, if you're not feeling, if you're not feeling uh, comfortable or happy or content, then we need to get rid of those awkward feelings or painful feelings as quickly as possible. And so the result is people go, right, what's the quickest fix going to be for me? Is it going to be burying this? Is it going to be drinking? Is it going to be distracting myself with work? And in some cases, is it going to be taking medication? Now, medication, and it's really important to emphasize this, can be useful for a lot of people. And I know many people have taken antidepressants and have benefited from that. Some people even have said that it saved their life. So I want to acknowledge that. But at the same time, if you want to just take a pill so that you can avoid doing some of that deeper work in your life, going and doing some therapy, working through, you know, what are my self-beliefs, then you're you're actually just putting a band-aid over mm. your problems. So I think what this process has meant for me is that it's forced me to do some of that deeper work. And I know that there will still be tough stuff that happens in my life. And I have to go back and do the work and I have to go back and do some counseling. i have to go back and work on my story. But I'm hoping that the work that I've done actually stands me in good stead. So I think the answer to your question is it sets you up for a more sustainable period of well being rather than going, I'm feeling crap this week or this month. How do I make this go away
0: for the month? Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And looking at the sort of big picture, I don't know if you read the book, uh, Lost Connections by yeah. Johan Hari. Yeah. And, you know, he talks about his experience when he first went through depression and. I think he was on holiday somewhere and he just said he felt like he was leaking pain mm. and the same sort of situation happened, you know, went to the doctor, they said there was a chemical imbalance with his brain, gave him some pills to increase his serotonin levels and he felt good for, you know, two, three months and then the same sort of uh, downward sp- uh, spiral uh, continued to mm. happen. And. He realized that, you know, his doctor never once actually asked him what is the root cause that might be contributing to his depression yes. in his life. Um, do you think and I think it's the same, you know, if we get injured, if we get hurt, you look at what happened or how how did you actually get that injury, you know? Did you fall off some stairs or did somebody punch you? Mm-hmm. But with our mental health, you know, we can just you're right, it's the it's the quick and fast fix which we're looking at. Totally. So if you walk into the bathroom and there's water all over the floor,
1: where are the options of where that water's come from? So either the, the tap's been left on, or maybe it's been raining outside and the water's come through the window, or maybe the shower's on, or maybe there's a leak in the roof, right? So there's, the, 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 the water on the floor is almost like the symptom, right? Like that's what's happened, yeah. but what's causing that? And so if you conclude that the water is coming from the tap and you go around turning all the taps off, but actually the taps weren't leaking in the first place, you're not actually dealing with the problem. And so that's a really simple analogy that I use to go, we actually need to work out, rather than fixating on the symptom, we need to work out what is actually causing that symptom. And the the real challenge here is that mental health is unlike physical health. So with physical health, you won't always know what's causing pain. But if someone has cancer, there's an objective way to test that, right? You either have cancer or you don't have cancer. Right. You either have COVID or you don't have COVID. It's not a matter of opinion. It's not subjective. You wouldn't go to 10 doctors and four of them say, "Mm, I think it's COVID. And the other six say, no, I don't think it's COVID. If you have a broken leg, you you get an X-ray and you have a broken leg or you don't. There's no way to test someone for depression. There's no way to send a camera inside someone's brain and say, right, I mean, everybody wants the pie chart, right? Like I wanted somebody to give me a pie chart that said, okay, this is 40% childhood trauma. It's 17% Mm. chemical imbalance. It's 18% work stress. It's it's 20% the fact that you're alone in a new city and you haven't had much social connection. No one can give you that, right? And so we rely on the opinions of mental health professionals, many of whom are doing uh, the best that they can with limited resources. I mean, even GPs, you know, people walk into a GP and get 15 minutes. At, you know, and I've, I've got friends who are GPs and they're like, there's, there's barely nothing that we can do in, in 15 minutes. And that's why so many GPs, I think, historically at least have resorted to medication as a first-line treatment Mm. rather than trying to explore some of that deeper stuff so we do have some of those issues in our system where we don't give the professionals enough time and resources we've got people who are waiting months and months to see a psychologist so my biggest problem is that we we diagnose and we label and we treat people on the basis of the symptoms that they report we very rarely go What about trauma? What about identity? What about culture? What about values? What about aspirations? What about relationships? What about all of the other factors that are in your life? And to me, that's the story. That is the person's story. So that brings us all the way back to your point about this and the book. I was like, how do we give people an understanding that your depression or your anxiety or your mental distress or whatever you want to call it is not just some spontaneous thing that occurs for most people. It's actually the product of all of these other factors
0: in your Mm. life. When you articulate it like that it all seems so simple yeah well,
1: <laughs> it does right i mean to me it does but i think we're we're steeped in this culture where we've got a very clinical mindset we've got a very very fixed mindset and also the conversations around mental health have mainly been led by the health sector and people in the medical establishment you know we live in a largely secular country where we don't have conversations around spirituality very much you know in other cultures and contexts Depression isn't just this medical thing. It, it's, it's explored in the wider context of life and yes. the human experience and suffering. You know, suffering is part of being human. So really what we're talking about here is not just a clinical mood disorder or a clinical illness. It's how do we make sense of pain? Mm. And that is a really deep question that generations and generations and generations have tried to get to grips with. Mm. So I guess what I'm trying to do is shift people to a conversation that's about how do we make sense of the tough stuff that takes place in our lives how does that change us how does that change our relationship with the world and when you move the conversation into that space and you, and and that's basically storytelling it's how do we tell a story about the tough stuff that happens it opens up all of these other options to you rather than just
0: going is my brain broken or is my brain not broken yes. you touched on earlier you know what we can kind of learn from other cultures and there was a point in the book when you're mentioning the four walls yes. and you know learning from sort of te ao Māori and that perspective on mental te whare, health. Te Whare te wha, yeah. Do, do you mind touching on that and just telling people what that sort of concept is?
1: Yeah, so this is um, a concept by a really respected Māori leader, Sir Mason Dury, and it's called Te Whare te wha, and it's the four walls of a house. And the walls are mental, physical, whānau, and spiritual health. And basically, all of those four walls make up the house, and the house represents well-being, or whole order. So, you know, when we usually have this conversation, we go, right, let's have a mental health conversation. And we talk about the mental. So we talk about your mind, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions. And we go, right, what's happening in those areas that may be making you feel this way? But actually, in Tefare Tapafa, the mental is connected to your Fano health. It's connected to your physical health, and it's connected to your spiritual health. And your spiritual health will you know, also include identity and, and values and belonging and, and all of those other things that make up who you are. And so I think um, that holistic approach makes so much more sense to me as well because our minds don't operate by themselves. They operate in the context of our life and yes. our body and all these other components. So you know, I think particularly the spiritual health conversation is really important and I would put the storytelling stuff in that space. You know, It's not just about how do I think or how do I feel? It's about who am I? where have i come from mm. where am i going um and so when you when you connect these other pieces together i think you can have a much more rounded understanding of your mental
0: health mm. i think it's quite easy for people to interpret as well you know if you think about your four walls and perhaps how strong they are you can sort of imagine that quite clearly and there might be gaps which you can sort of look into. And mm. that's, you know, reading that in your book, it, I was just like, wow, you know, really, really stood out to me. Cool. Um, <clears throat> Jahan, if we can just touch on sort of your mental health journey as well. Uh, you know, you're in your in your role as a journalist, you've probably got the most outward facing role probably ever, you know, <laughs> maybe behind the prime minister. I but, wouldn't go that far, but yeah. But you you know, you know what I'm trying to say there yeah. is every day you're putting yourself out there. You know, people are people are tuning in. Listening to you, looking at you, but on the inside, you know, you were going through some really serious stuff with your mental health. But, you know, the facade of it all, nobody would probably know unless they were really a close friend of yours. How did you sort of make that juggle between the external and internal, Jahan?
1: Yeah, so I put on the mask. And, you know, it's interesting having the opportunity to talk about this stuff. You know, most people out there in the world, don't get to write a book. They don't get to sit and be interviewed on a podcast. And so as a result, a lot of the stories that we hear are from people who have a public profile. But the thing that I always say to people is, it's not just journalists or politicians or sports people who put on masks. We're all doing it. You know, It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. It doesn't matter what your job is, your gender is, where you live. People put on masks in order to survive. And so in my own life, I put on the mask each day because I wanted to perform. I wanted to meet other people's expectations of me. I knew there were people, especially when I took on a new job, who were watching to see whether I was up to it. Like, is he really up to this job? Is he in way over his head or is he going to succeed? Uh, And I didn't want to give anyone any ammunition to say, "Mm, see, we told you so, you know, he's too young or whatever. So I was determined to prove them wrong. But I was also determined to live up to my own expectations, you know, like I've always pursued excellence in what I do. And so I didn't want to let myself down any more than I wanted to let anybody else down. And I think also because I was so used to traveling and achieving and, and just living that life, that was, that was kind of all I knew. And I was really terrified of what would happen if I stepped out of that. I, would, I was like, well, how am I going to hold my life together? So it was, it was actually easier to get up each day and force myself to work, to go to the airport, to, to film mm-hmm. or whatever I needed to do. The problem with that is that that lifestyle, it was what you might call a protective factor. In other words, it was a positive factor for my mental health, but it was also a risk factor because it was, it was a lifestyle that was unhealthy for me for a, for a long time because I was using it to try and suppress the feelings that I actually had. Yes. And so it was this, it was this, I felt like I was between a rock and a hard place. It's like this lifestyle is keeping me alive, but it's also killing me at the same time. Mm. So what's the right decision here? Is the right decision to keep working and just soldier on and get more and more and more exhausted? Or do I need to take time out? The other thing was, you know, in terms of my personal relationships, you know, I didn't tell my parents because I didn't want to upset them and I didn't want to burden them. And for anyone who's been in this position, you already feel like a burden. The last thing you want to do is pass more of your stuff on to other people. There was a small number of my own friends that I shared this with and sort of invited them to support me on that journey. And some of them did. Some of them found that really hard. Some of them couldn't relate. Some of them didn't know what to do. Some of them were probably a bit useless. So there was a whole spectrum of responses there through to really supportive, um, you know, particularly my best mate played a huge role in my life during that time. But there were other people that I, I really struggled with how absent they seem to be during that period. So, you know, throughout most of that time, I just thought, well, I'm, I, it's just me. Like, mm. I just need to to keep battling on. And it was only after four years of that that I got to a point where I was like, I need to take time off. And that's when I went to TVNZ. I said, look, I need, I need six months of unpaid leave to go back to Wellington and sort of put myself back together. And that was, yeah, the hardest decision I've ever made, but the most important one.
0: Mm, no, absolutely. Um, and you mentioned in the book as well, you know, a moment when you're in Wellington and you're at a hotel and you're sort of standing on the on the balcony of this hotel, really, you know, questioning and having some suicidal thoughts as well. And then you call up, you know, your friend Tommy. Um, do you mind just touching on that relationship with Tommy there and how he's helped you through some of those hard times?
1: Yeah, so I'm really fortunate to, to have a best mate. I guess not everybody has that. And uh, Tommy was totally aware of where things were at for me. And, you know, through most of this period of depression, we were talking multiple times a day. You know, I was sharing so much of um, what I was going through with him and he was an incredible support. I think one of the main things he did was he reminded me of who I was. You know, when you're in that space, you lose perspective. You you know, my sense of humour or my personality or my ability to be a good mate or any of those other parts of me felt like they were dead. And all I was was this depressed character in my story. So he made this decision, because he's a really caring person, to walk that journey with me week after week and then month after month and year after year. So on that particular night, um, he came over and spent some time with me and made sure that I was safe. Um, and that was an example of just one of the one of the times where he showed up for me in that way. But what I didn't um, fully appreciate at the time was that there was a cumulative effect, there was a cumulative burden of that on him. And mm. so after a while, his mental health started to suffer because he'd spent so long, largely single-handedly supporting me through my own stuff. And that was really the wake-up call for me. That was the point where I went, nah, I need to draw a line in the sand here. And I think, you know, for many people listening to this, you can absorb your own distress, you can put up with your own stuff, but the moment it starts to hurt someone else, you're like, actually, that's, that's not okay. And that was really the thing that led me to Take six months off and come back to Wellington mm. because I knew that what I was doing wasn't sustainable. But you know, I was really fortunate that I had had a friend who was able to play that role in my life.
0: Mm. Shout out to Tommy! What yeah. a guy! What a dude! Yeah. Um, there was also another you know point in your in your book, and this really this really you know impacted me when I read it. Um, and I think it goes to show just how real the illness of depression can be in someone's mind. You said, if depression killed me. How could you be held, uh, held responsible? Um, do you mind just touching, touching on that quote?
1: Yeah, at that time when I wrote that, I, the, the thinking in my head was, I'm ill, something's gone wrong inside my head. And in the same way that if someone died from cancer, you wouldn't blame them for that. No. You would say that it's the, they are, it's the cancer, right? So this is a really interesting and nuanced point. So I would still say if someone is in the grip of depression, and they're in that place where they're disempowered, they're exhausted, they're overwhelmed, their, their, their perspective has gone out the window, then there is an argument to say that they can't be held responsible because you know, otherwise we would just tell everyone to take a concrete pill and harden up, which is what we used to do back in the day. So I think we've got to a point where we can have empathy and say, uh, it's not a case of just pulling up your socks and carrying on, and there is an element of you not being responsible because you've experienced this distress. However, I would now nuance that by saying at the same time, coming back to what we talked about, I'm still responsible for my own well-being. I'm still the author of my own story. I can still make choices. So I think it's a really fine line to walk between those two ideas. I am responsible for my own well-being, but at the same time, I'm not doing well and I need help. And I think it's okay to to try
0: and straddle those two ideas. Mm. Have you found through this process of being so vulnerable and, you know, really putting a spotlight on mental health in New Zealand, have you found that that's also been quite challenging for you, you know, having to perhaps, you know, relive some of those really dark days in your life? Yeah. I mean,
1: I'm in this really interesting position now where I am doing a lot of speaking. And so a lot of my time now is traveling around the country and having these conversations with people. And but that was never really the plan. You know, I wrote the book as a way of, Processing what I'd been through and trying to share it in a form that was useful for other people. You know, I wasn't interested in just, you know, my my face is not on the front of the book. I wasn't interested in just doing it as a vanity project. I genuinely thought, actually, there's there's an idea here that might be useful to other people. And that's led to all of these other opportunities. But I still find it really hard. You know, like in the last couple of weeks, I've probably done three or four presentations to, you know, to farmers or to accountants, Mm. you know, audiences of people that I've never met before. And I find it really challenging, you know, as you know, when you get up and and share your story, and I've seen you do that a couple of times in front of these big audiences, no matter how many times you do it, you don't get fully desensitized to it, or at least I don't think so. And so I, I never want to do it on autopilot because otherwise I'm not actually engaging with it and it's just content. And I'm like, well, it's not content, it's my life. Yes. It's, it's authentic to me. So I want to put my heart into it. But at the same time, that does require a level of vulnerability and and there are days where I don't feel like doing it. I'm like, the last thing I want to do today is get up in front of a bunch of strangers and tell them about the most painful experiences mm. I've ever had in my life. Like, who would do that? Like, you've kind of got to be nuts to, to do that anyway on a regular basis. But the reason that I do it is because I've seen the fruit of those corridors, And I've had messages from people who, you know, I had a message literally this week from someone who on LinkedIn who said, just wanted to let you know your book saved my life. Wow. And I'm like, it doesn't, doesn't get better than that, no. you know? And and I've done a lot of awesome stuff and told stories and awards or ratings or any of that superficial stuff in the media industry does not match up to someone saying, your story helped me see this in a new way. It led me to go and get therapy. It led me to have a conversation with someone to ask for help. That's the stuff that I mm. find really satisfying. But yeah, it is, it is vulnerable. And I think one of the problems is, again, it's that thing of, People falling in a hole and popping out the other side. You know, there are all these people in the well-being space now, which is good in some ways that there are people telling their stories. But when you're just seeing that on Instagram or you're seeing it, you know, in a podcast like this, I don't want people to think, right, he's sitting, the fact that he's on the podcast and he's sitting there must mean that he's he's fixed. He's sweet with telling the story. It doesn't affect him anymore. Like, that's not true at all. No. Like, I still have bad days. I still have shame and guilt and failure that I need to work through. I still feel... You know, when I'm telling the story, I'm like, "Man, why didn't you do this? Or why didn't you do that? Or Why did you screw this up?" And that's just part of being human, you know. But yeah. it's coming, it's getting to getting to grips with the fact that everybody has flaws, and um, excellence, which, as I said, I've always pursued, doesn't require perfection. You know, mm. you can still live a really uh, productive and successful life where you're making a contribution to the world while also being a bit broken, you know, and having some, having some mess in your life. And actually that's what makes people relatable. Mm. Like when I look at all of this, you know, I was thinking about, you know, your journey when I was driving up here today, if you hadn't made the choices that you'd made in life, if you hadn't experienced some tough stuff, you know, we would never have met. You would never have had a media profile. You would have never had the opportunities that led to what you are doing today. And I don't think that means we go, all that stuff was all right. You know, I don't look back at that period of depression and go, oh, well, it led to some good stuff, so it's all sweet. Like, it wasn't sweet. I still would rather it didn't happen. But at the same time, I can go, it has given me all these gifts. You know, it's given me the ability to have these conversations and empathise with people and meet people and share with them. So I don't regret any of those Mm. things.
0: Just when you were saying that, you know, I was really reflecting on my journey and, you know, how we first connected. And, um, you know, for those who don't know, I became a dad when I was 16 and I really hid that from my parents um for a long time until my daughter was born because I was afraid of the stereotype of a teen parent Mm. you know um and that somehow I would contribute and fall into that own narrative um and it wasn't until you know I told I told my mum mustered up the courage to tell her and she probably flipped the narrative of my situation that I had in my head totally upside down you know because I came up to her I was like yeah you know I'm, I'm a a dad sort of thing and I was I was really really upset and she was like Noah this is this is beautiful like you should be proud and if you you know speak uh, with your head down and you know not with confidence that's when people can just walk all over you but if you actually fully own the situation um, and be like yeah I am a young dad and look and look what I can do with you know the opportunity and the motivation that fuels me with totally it can um yeah I, I th- yeah, they just totally resonated when you when you were saying that. So I thought I'd I'd, I'd share that. Well, that's that. what
1: you've done. You know, I remember hearing probably maybe the first speech that you ever gave, or one of the first, which was at a principals' conference. I think in Wellington mm. when you were in your last year of high school, like years and years ago. So getting up in front of six hundred principals. I think I was emceeing that conference, and you'd done a little bit of media, which you know was really hard for you at that time because of the public reaction and stuff. But you would. I think you were probably at the point of deciding. Am I going to bury this, and just, which most people do, and live their life? Or am I going to continue telling this story? I think anyone who goes through something like this or has these opportunities, you come to a decision point. You're like, am I still going to be that teen dad guy? Or am I just going to be like, that's part of my story that I don't need to keep sharing? And you made a decision to go, people are still interested. People are still asking. This seems to resonate in some way. I'm going to keep doing it. Mm. And- you know that's led to to all of the opportunities that you've had at the same time i do think you know your stories are taonga and so your story is a treasure and that doesn't mean that you need to go around sharing it with everyone it doesn't mean you know, i say no to a lot of stuff i have to in order to look after my own well-being i can't be talking about this stuff all day every day no. so i'm pretty selective about what i do but at the same time i i think that i would be doing myself and others a disservice if i just buried this and thought mm, oh, yeah i'd actually rather not talk about this I'm just going to continue with my life and Mm. i actually think i'd have a more boring life i think Mm. my life is much better being an open book and you know it's so awesome as a result of this stuff to not have secrets you know it's like mike king always says secrets keep you sick yeah well secrets make you sick and again i'm not saying that means you need to go around telling people all your stuff and the last thing you should do is share anything in a context that is not safe Whether that's in a one-on-one one-on-one relationship or in a public context, you need to be really. You need to have good support around you. You need to have good well-being practices in order to do that safely. So I wouldn't be doing this interview with you today if this was going to have a detrimental impact on my well-being. But at the same time, you know, it is freeing to go right. I've put my like when you write a book, or in your case, like when you did your original media stories. I always say to people, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Once you've once it's on the internet and once you've told it, it's there. Like when you decided to do that story, the fact that you were a teen dad when you rang up the radio station the first time, you know, when you made that call to News Talk ZB and you decided to share your story, you probably didn't think about this while you were driving along the motorway. But you're like, I will never be able to make that private again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's probably a lesson for people. Like if you're going to do that, then then be considered about it. But. Once it's out there, it's out there. You know, this book, I and, and you know, I, I haven't gone and read it in the last year since it came out, but there's times where I think, oh, actually, I don't agree with that anymore. I would write that differently or I've changed. But when I, when I published it, I knew that it was like, it was a snapshot of that moment in time in my life. Yes. And I hope actually that in 10 years, I, I look at it and half of it's redundant or half of it, I'm like, man, actually, that was, I think, feel differently about that or whatever. Because otherwise, if I didn't, then I wouldn't be growing or changing, yes. right? But I think part of telling your story is you've just got to accept that what you put out there is not going to represent you for the rest of your life, mm. and if people judge you by it or they see you as this one-dimensional character, then that's actually on them.
0: That's so true. You know, that not is on so you. true. Um, moving sort of around, you know, mental health in New Zealand, like we have some of the most woeful uh, statistics, especially around youth suicide. You know, one of the worst in the OECD. Um, I think the figure for you know those who lost their life due to suicide from the year to 30 june 2021 of 607 people um why and i'm not expecting you to have the answer but in your opinion why do you think our statistics are so are so terrible in our country is it you know sort of the macho macho mentality that we have and the you know idolizing the all blacks and you know our back root, roots down to being farmers you yeah. know and the sort of Pull up your bootstrap sort of mentality.
1: Yeah, I think there's a real generational change that's happening because we do have that generation above us, or maybe two generations above us, who come from that macho take a concrete pill and harden up mentality. And I'm not saying that younger people don't have that. And I think if you travel particularly to a lot of Heartland, New Zealand, that that attitude is still really prevalent even among people our age. But I think we've come quite a long way. And so I think for our generation, the challenges are different. So on one hand, we have all of these resources and tools that our parents or their parents didn't have. So you're like, well, if you've got all the tools and you've got the support, then things should be sweet, right? One of the reasons they're not sweet is because the tools are not available to everybody. You know, there are people around the country who don't have access to mental health support. They don't have access to counselling. So when we say ask for help, I think the only thing worse than not asking for help is asking for help and there being no help available. Mm. So I think a lot of people are having that experience. But I think also for the younger generation, There are just factors in our culture that are contributing to our mental distress. Climate change is a massive one on people's minds. And I always used to think, "Mm, you know, is that really that much of an impact? But even in the last few weeks, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around um, COP26, which is happening in Glasgow. There's been a report from the IPCC. You know, I've started to pay more attention to it and I feel anxious about it, you know. So that's just one of the things. There's COVID. Technology is a massive one. Social media? Social media. I think, you know, uh, 20 years ago, personal devices like iPhones went around and we haven't got our heads around the fact that our brains haven't evolved to deal with information in the way that we're currently consuming it. I think the, the technology that we have is really useful and helpful, but I also think that it's having a hugely detrimental impact on, mm. on our well-being. I mean, social media, yes, it's great and this podcast will be distributed by social media, but it's the comparison thing, you know, it's the fact that we're comparing ourselves to other people's highlights reels all the time. So, you know, there might be 20 factors in a young person's life that are influencing their mental distress. The fact that, you know, Instagram could be just one of those factors, you know, their working hours could be another, their working conditions could be another, their sense of disconnection. You know, he talked about Johan Hari's book. He talks about the impact of disconnection. Yes. That, that actually connection is the antidote to depression. And that's not, you know, that's a pretty general answer, and that's one of the answers. I'm not saying that's true for everybody, but I think for me, That feeling of being disconnected, the feeling of not being understood, the feeling of not having a sense of belonging was a major factor in how I felt. So again, there's no simple answer, but I think it's only by going, how are we living? You know, like the Western diet has changed dramatically in the last 50 years. Auckland University did a study and they found that 69% of the food in our supermarkets is ultra processed. Now, it's not just processed, like processing, curing meat, pasteurizing milk, that's fine. But we're talking about ultra-processed. Mm. We're talking about food that's been pretty much made unrecognizable as a result of the, the chemicals and the stuff that's been put into it. That's most of the food in our supermarkets. So again, there's just one factor that you can look at and go, our brains are not being nourished. No. You know, like our, So the stress, the technology, the food, all of these factors, I think it's just like this cocktail of things that mean that even in a relatively wealthy comfortable safe western country we're seeing
0: this epidemic of mental distress so true so true and as somebody that has a six-year-old daughter you know the my sort of fears around social media from what i've seen from you know uh my friends uh male and female actually um it is so so detrimental and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on sort of intrinsic versus extrinsic sort of motivations behind doing things. You know, intrinsic is more. uh, It might be playing the guitar simply because you love it. um, The other one, which I just forgot how to pronounce. Yeah, yeah. 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 (laughs) That you know, that's more transactional. So that might be like working a shitty job, but you're doing it because it pays well, or uploading stuff onto social media because you can get that clout or kind of show off your own situation. Um, What are your thoughts around sort of feeding into those values?
1: Yeah, so I mean the essence of that question is why do we do the things that we do and are we doing them because we want to get the likes or we want other people's approval or are we doing them because they are an end in and of themselves and so coming back to what I was saying earlier around curiosity in the education system, I think the reason why a lot of people do things is because they're going to be assessed on them. You know, we do things because I need the credits or I need the mark or I need to pass this thing and to me that's really crappy motivation. That is not a good way of um, fostering uh, a sense of curiosity that's going to lead you into the workforce in a successful way. So, you know, if we can teach kids that curiosity is an end in and of itself, you can do something because you're just interested in it, you can do something because um, you're fascinated by it, then that's probably more likely to lead them into the places that we want them to go. At the same time, look, we all need to, you know, I'm, we're not I'm in la-la land here. Like, people need to uh, earn money and they need to have jobs and they need to pay their bills. So we've got to be pragmatic at the same time. I'm not saying, it's not just a airy fairy follow your dreams and, and do whatever you want. Like, we're living in an economic system where um, we have to earn money in order to survive. So I think it's about trying to strike a balance there, if that makes sense.
0: Mm. Mm. There's a lot of money being invested into mental health at the moment. Mm. I think I uh, wrote down that in the budget 2019, the government allocated 1.1 billion dollars in operational spending towards mental health. Where did that go? And you know what is the results of that? Because and do you think what could be changed to really, I guess, take our mental health services to the next step?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I talk to a lot of uh, people and organisations that are working in this space, and I think the short answer is everyone says. That we need more money everyone says that they're underfunded and actually most if not all of the people that i've talked to say that they haven't seen tangible evidence of that money and there's a much longer answer around how the money's been structured over a number of years and how it's taking time for it to bid in and whatever but i think we can all agree that we haven't actually seen a tangible impact right. of that money in the last couple of years so coming back to my point around around services a lot of people don't have access to the services they don't we there's other structural issues like we don't actually have enough counselors we don't have enough psychologists so you can throw money at something but unless you're actually bringing more of those people in through universities and stuff then you're not going to actually have the workforce that you need but i think you know one of the main problems with how we're spending money at the moment is a lot of it is going to ambulance at the bottom of the cliff yeah so we're treating people when they get to acute distress and actually many people that i talk to say that even at that point they can't get the help so Um, It's not until someone harms themselves or finds themselves in a really bad situation that they get taken seriously because actually there's people walking into EDs all over the country saying, look, I don't feel safe. I don't feel like I'm in a good space, but there's nothing that can be done for them. There's nowhere for them to go. So we're waiting too long. We're waiting until someone gets into a place where they can't really um, come back from Mm. in some cases. And really what we should be doing is investing in proactive, preventative stuff. And this is the same problem with our physical health system. You know, go and look at how much money we spend on people with diabetes, how much money we spend on obesity, how much money we spend on people with lung cancer, you know, compared to how much do we spend on preventing smoking? How much do we spend on preventing people getting diabetes and changing their lifestyles and changing their eating habits? So I think
0: that's just a symptom of our overall system. Yeah, no, we need the sort of fence at the top of the hill approach yeah. rather than the ambulance waiting to pick, pick people up totally. once they've fallen down. Um. Imposter syndrome is also another really big one in this country, and something I was I was keen to ask you about. You know, you won the 2020 uh, Reporter of the Year award, and um, probably you know one of the biggest accolades you can get in your profession. Mm-hmm. So, and also, well done, congratulations <laughs> on that. Um, have you ever felt imposter syndrome? Totally. I guess who hasn't, right? Yeah, but um, I mean, I
1: still I still feel it now, and I feel it before I do a major interview or before I meet someone for the first time. Or before i do something like this you know it hasn't got any easier and i would love to say to you oh the more experience i've had i am now really <laughs> yeah i'm really comfortable and you know like i still find every interview that i do just as hard as the last one like i interviewed uh, megan woods recently for the sunday program for a story about coal, and it was a challenging interview we were talking about a really important topic and i was like i was sitting there before she came and i was like this has not got any easier over the last 12 years and and yes of course with experience, you become more comfortable. You you learn how to do different things, and so um, there is there is the benefit of experience. But at the same time, I probably feel just as nervous, just as petrified that it's going to go badly, that I'm going to screw up, that I haven't done enough preparation. So that's that's all there. And so you've actually got to learn to tame some of those thoughts because otherwise they cripple your performance. But in terms of my value, I think that's something I've always struggled with. Like I've always on one hand had this crazy confidence that meant that i was able to bang on these people's doors at a really young age and say i can do this i can be on tv i can succeed but at the at the very same time feeling like i have no worth i don't you know i don't i don't belong here mm. uh, people are judging me people think i'm gonna uh, screw up so that's really confusing and i think that's just a reflection of the fact that so many of us have this really loud inner critic in our head that is, no matter what you achieve, you know, and you know, you've talked about some of the things I have achieved. In some ways, that didn't make it easier. You know, you don't, one of the things I realized was when I was really young and I was coming into this industry, I looked at these titans, I looked at Paul Holmes or Paul Henry or John Campbell or Simon Dallow, and I thought, oh man, if only I can get to that level if i'm paid that much or if i win some awards or if i break some big stories then i will life will be sweet because i'll be at the top of the hill i will have made it it'll be easy and when you when you actually get up the ladder a little bit further you realize it doesn't get easy and there's actually different challenges on those people there's different pressures yeah a lot of them are still really um you know, they have self doubt about what they do. They feel like imposters. It's like, how do you how do you feel like you're impos- an imposter? You've been reading the news or you've been presenting this thing for so long, but that they're, they're human
0: just like everybody else, you know? I think it's a really key point, right? We're we're all human, we all experience the same sort of emotions. Yeah. Um damn it. I thought it would have got easier with time, you know? Even <laughs> even like this interview this morning. So, oh, I think man, for you. The, well, yeah. I, I think I'm a special case. Uh, I think I think you'll be I think you'll be sweet. Hope so, eh? he's hoping. Hey, before we wrap up, yeah. um, you know, where can where can people uh keep in touch with you, Jahan? Um, obviously by the book I got this from Wickles. Um, and also online, I'm sure they can purchase a yeah. copy.
1: Paper Plus has it online as well.
0: Yeah. yeah, where where can people uh get in touch with you and follow your mahi?
1: Yeah, they uh, are welcome to follow me on LinkedIn. That's probably the place where I put most of my content. Uh and my website is jahancasinata.co.nz. People are always free to drop me a line you know i try and help out with answers to questions if i can bearing in mind that i'm not a mental health professional so i try to be really careful to not stray into giving specific advice around things that are people going through but i can i can always give just general advice from my
0: own perspective yeah on what i've experienced yeah that's lovely man hey we'll have some quick sort of fire questions before ending with a quote uh jahan what is the meaning of life
1: oh my goodness i have done this to so many people before (laughs) but i've never prepared for it myself um my answer today which will probably be different on another day uh, my answer today is finding your purpose and being connected with others
0: nice love it what does legacy mean to you
1: being in the moment and not focusing too much on what the legacy will be
0: that's good I might write that one down actually. If you could change one thing in New Zealand, what would this be?
1: Every single person in this country understanding their worth as a human being.
0: What do you believe is the main thing that is holding back young people in NZ?
1: Lack of self-belief.
0: What advice do you have to somebody right now who might be struggling?
1: Ask for help, but also recognize that your well being is within your own control and that you're the author of your own story.
0: Beautiful. We'll end on a quote from uh, Matt Haig. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite short and sweet, but I thought it sort of fit the episode quite nicely. Mental health problems don't define who you are, they are something you experience. You walk in the rain and you feel the rain, but you are not the rain. Mm. Cool. Nice. We'll leave it at that. Awesome. Jahan, thank you. Thanks, Noah.